All right, so we've been studying through um, 1 Corinthians. And essentially, 1 Corinthians is a, a letter of correction, and it breaks into an ongoing conversation that Paul has been having with the church at Corinth. And it's Paul's effort to show the Gentile church of new converts where and how they were living misaligned to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And thus, so far, we have walked through a veritable minefield of ordinary church issues. We began with division, went to church discipline, to marriage, to human sexuality, to singleness and women in ministry, and now today, um, Eucharist. And as I was thinking about this this weekend and preparing for our moments here this morning, I noted um, of all my church experience now of over 40 years, the spirit in which we walked through that minefield. I have not heard one angry, mean-spirited, judgmental comment by anybody in all of these six or eight weeks. And I think we should just stop and say that that is a great sign of God at work amongst us, not just amongst us as a community and the respect and love and forbearance and fruit of the spirit that's growing amongst us, but the work of God in our hearts. It's actually astounding to me. I mean, do you know there are whole denominations who've split over these things? And there's churches everywhere that have split over these things. And it's just lovely to me, uh, the spirit in which we have um, walked through this. So knowing we were getting to Eucharist this morning, it felt like a breath of fresh air to me, you know, like, uh, like the emotional temperature just seemed down. And then, and I think it really is, but then I started studying and realizing that for Paul, he's now getting to the stuff that he thinks is really important. Like, this is the, the really big deal. And so our readings this morning um, show us both the establishment of the Lord's Supper, as Josh just read to us from the Gospels, And as Lisa read to us, the corrections about its misuse just some 50 years later. And so this morning, I want to do a couple things, just briefly unpack Paul's concerns, but then spend a little more time on what Eucharist can mean to us in our own formation in Christ. So Paul starts by saying this pretty radical thing, your meetings do more harm than good. I mean, how would it be for us if we got a letter from our archbishop uh, in Atlanta saying, hey, Hunter, your meetings at Holy Trinity do more harm than good. I mean, this is about as, as you know, strong of a correction uh, that anybody could hear from a, a founding pastor, so to speak, in the Apostle Paul. And he says very quickly why. He says, because there are divisions among you. So very much like we might think of Indian or English society, Uh, The Greco-Roman era in which Paul was ministering also had a kind of class or social hierarchy between the rich and poor. And it it, uh, reinforced social divisions that Paul wants to say have nothing to do with creation. Did you catch that? Like whatever you're doing, it does not in any way line up to God's intention in creation. And it certainly has no alignment with God's intention in redemption. And this is why your meetings are doing more harm than good, because they're reinforcing false divisions. Now, what's fascinating is that Paul writes, or excuse me, gives his argument or makes his case, you might say, by appealing to what we call the words of institution. That is to say, as we just read in the Gospels, when Jesus began or instituted the Lord's Supper, 
Paul is simply saying, okay, let me go over this with you one more time, telling you exactly why what goes on in the Lord's Supper is so centrally important. And he says, I received these instructions from the master himself and am now passing them on to you. So Paul wants them to see and to realize solemnly is that every time they eat the bread and drink the cup, they are reenacting the words and actions and death of Jesus. So now just think of the solemnness that Paul wants them to hear in that. He says, but when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, what is that? Well, what that is, is this, that for Paul in his house churches, communion was a full meal during which one loaf of bread would be blessed and passed around and one cup or one chalice would be blessed and passed around as well. But what they were doing, Paul says, is you're eating your own private suppers in which you're dividing yourselves between rich and poor. And for Paul, this is scandalous because what he's picturing is those words of institutions we read in the gospel. So picture bread going out of Jesus's hands, which is meant to break divisions and make us one. And instead, this bread that had gone out of Jesus's hands and that was being celebrated amongst the early churches, instead of bringing people together, it was was being used to separate them into classes. And this is what Paul's so upset about. So imagine coming to church and saying, okay, all of you who are of low economic and educational class, you're out there on the small patio. All of you who are middle class, you're out there on that patio. But the upper class will be here in the chapel. And we get here early and we begin our high class meals so that we're not bothered with you and we can kind of do it in private. And when you get here, you sort of bypass these main doors. And if you're middle class, you go out there and you eat your middle class meals. If you're low class, you go out there and you eat your low class meals. And Paul's saying, you can't do this. And again, the answer is to the question why is rooted in the words of institutions institution that your actions are not in keeping with remembering and proclaiming Christ. So then Paul says what you're actually doing is whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in this way, which is in in an unworthy manner, without discerning the body of Christ, that is to say to see that the body of Christ is all one, you actually eat and drink judgment on yourself. Paul wants them to see that the unity of the body between the head and the rest of the body is an essential oneness that rules out all class societies. And he's essentially chiding them for rathering to eat their rich meal in a special room than to celebrate the work of God in creating a one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So that which was meant to reaffirm who we are and whose we are, had become in this church an instrument of disapproval for the very people Christ has died. You sinful over there, you weak and weary over here, all of us good people here in the chapel. And so what Paul's reminding them is that Jesus' death was in part intended to create a one new people in his name. We can probably never in our world today, our modern world, Um, really grasp the radicalness of these Pauline thoughts, like to the Galatians. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. Now, that's patently an oxymoron. 
Jew and Gentile were nouns that precisely denoted division. That's precisely what they did. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And so you think, you know, the letter of Ephesians, the breaking down of the wall, the barrier that had separated these people for millennia is now all broken down. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave who eats out there and free people who eat in here. There is no male or female. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this doesn't mean there aren't gender distinctions. It means there aren't gender hierarchies. Where one gender eats out there and another eats in here. Why? Why is this true? For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And so to be, so this is actually easy. You can catch this now. So to be breaking that oneness through a religious service was to Paul appalling. And therefore your meetings are doing more harm than they're doing good. And you're not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. You're actually eating and drinking condemnation onto yourself because you're dividing the body of Christ. Paul repeats himself in Colossians by saying there's no Gentile or Jew, nor circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Well, that's what's bothering Paul. So if we turn our attention to kind of more modern Eucharistic questions, more modern Eucharistic questions have been things like, what happens at Eucharist? And obviously in a brief sermon, I can't answer that question, but you know the issues. Is it transubstantiation? Does something happen to the bread and wine where it transforms into the very body and blood of Christ? Is it a more sort of Lutheran understanding of consubstantiation that the bread and wine don't actually transform, but they contain the body and blood of Jesus? Or is it a more evangelical or Anabaptist point of view that it's a mere memorial? These are the kind of questions that have sort of dominated Christian thinking at least since the Reformation. But I want to suggest as sort of pastor evangelist that in our culture today, there's a whole different question being asked. I can't remember the last time someone asked me about transubstantiation. Seriously, it's probably been a couple decades. A way bigger question is, why do it at all? And I think we just should stop and say that um, as, you know, basically, I'm not trying to label you individually, but just basically as a group of, individ- a group of evangelicals in a, in a church, in a room like we're in here today, there'd be a lot of, well, isn't church just really singing and teaching? I mean, that's normal church. We're the weird ones. I mean, not historically, But in contemporary evangelicalism, we're the kind of odd duck. I mean, shouldn't you just like sing for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes and then have a 30 or 40 minute sermon, uh, um, announcements, offering another song, go home? I mean, that is the essential sort of evangelical liturgy. And I'm not putting that down. I came to Christ in it, was nourished in it. I don't have any judgment of it. I'm just simply pointing out that today the bigger question is not exactly what happens, but why should we do that at all? And that's the question I want to try to answer this morning. First, by saying this. To try to give you an imagination for Eucharist as a means of encountering God. That spiritually speaking, what's happening as we come to the table, we remind ourselves in our, in our first words as we come to the table. Remember what they are? The Lord is here. 
We are encountering the Lord as we come to Eucharist and reminding ourselves that he is the true center, the focus, and the outcome of history. And that as I eat and drink, I am reshaping my appetites. I'm being actually taught what to desire, to evermore desire the person of Christ as his body and blood. And I am putting my temptations, therefore, in their proper places. And so the first thing I would want to say to you is that the Eucharist, though incredibly mysterious and sort of on the surface religious, I get that. But I want to say to you that it is nothing if it doesn't have a livedness to it. I mean, Christian theology without a livedness, without a livability to it, is nothing. This is an essential livedness. I consume the presence of Christ. It as light week after week, or in some cases day after day, banishes then the darkness from my life and reconstructs my inner being. Now, um, the paying attention amongst us and or the slightly cynical amongst us would say, okay, Todd, if that's true, then you explain to me the deadness the absolute door deadness of liturgical and sacramental mainline denominations. Of course, I can't really do that, but I would suggest this. None of what I'm saying works unless you intend it to. So how would I explain the deadness of liturgical and sacramental churches is that there was actually no intention to feed on Christ in my heart by faith. It had become mere religion, both in the clergy and in the churches. And without our intention to eat of Christ by faith, to drink of him by faith, to invite the Spirit to mediate Christ to us through these sacramental elements, we don't have what was intended. But we're not left alone in this with merely our intentions and our commitments, that these Eucharistic prayers in this moment around the table, it assists my intentions and my commitments. It kindles the love of Christ in us and gives us a respect for God and a thirst for the Spirit. If that's what you want, right? I mean, we've said many times in this church that we are not primarily thinking beings. We are primarily desiring beings. And Jesus knows this. Who do you say that I am? What do you want? What do others say that I am? You know, answering the question, would you like Jesus to be Lord, is a way more profound question than is he. Because asking the, answering the question, would I like him to actually be the world's one true Lord, gets at the current state of your desires. Which then raises the question, what if, you, what if it's your current state of desires that filters the evidence of whether he is or not? And so what we bring to this is hugely important. If we seek nourishment and refreshment and empowerment for the journey to follow Jesus, then this is what we'll receive. And then the big sort of um, Christ, um, his history, future, you know, kind of the big meta thought in all of this is that having been fed at the table, as our prayer of thanksgiving says, we then spread the goodness of Jesus to the world as a table. 
Send us out in the world, we pray, to love and serve God and others. Having been fed at the table, we, you know, metaphorically speaking, then become the table or extend it to the world around us. Well, next I'd want to say that I think Eucharist, if we intend so, fights our cultural context. I mean, I don't think it's too much to say that everything around us lies to us and distorts our views of God and self and others all day, every day. I mean, just the, the, the implicit and implicit messages, sorry, the, the direct and implicit messages that come to us day in and day out, we're not even conscious of it anymore. It, it just sits in our subconscious and it lies to us all day, every day. But this other story, this other story of the upper room as we read it in the Gospels, all through church history down to this morning in this chapel is meant to be a story in which we learn that we are not self-made, that we were created, and that we are redeemed, and that we find ourselves in this essentially Eucharistic story of giving thanks to God for who he is, Thanks to God for the sending of his son. Thanks to God for the sending of his spirit. And thanks to God in us becoming an agent that others would find thankfulness. This is the big story. Next, I would want to say to those who wonder about Eucharist as a modern form of worship, that Eucharist has a profound effect on community. So in a few moments, you know, the ushers will help us and we'll line up as we always do and we will personally come to communion, rightfully so. Communion is deeply personal or it's nothing. But I want you to catch this. While being personal, it is never private. Those are very different things. Eucharist, of course, has to be deeply personal. But it's never Private. We are in public with windows all around us to display what is happening here. And so rather than it ever being a private act of piety, Eucharist expresses the community's unity as the new people of God. So in fact, public Eucharist is political in the proper sense of the word political, not what we're going through now but in the proper sense of the word political. That is to say, Eucharist preaches without saying anything. The weekly practice of, of Eucharist preaches. It preaches to us and to others. And it doesn't do less than reminding the state, whether you're under a dictatorship in North Korea or a Christian in China 50 or 100 years ago or a a Christian in the Western world somewhere, Eucharist reminds the state that it is derived from God. Now just lay that over your present political angst. State, you are derivative. You are not essential. You derive your power and your existence from God. You have no real kingdom of your own. Now, I know that will, come to, that will be news to political parties, but that's okay. The fact of the matter is they have no real kingdom of their own. The political structures of whatever kind are limited and temporary. 
If there is anything true about Christ, this is that the principalities and powers that enslave humankind have been defeated. And anybody who wants to can walk out from their power, walk into the kingdom of God, derive their life from that kingdom and live their life within it. And that is human goodness in the image of God. And because Jesus did break the power, broke the chains of injustice, not only forgave sins, but loosed us from our sins, we can live into that. And Eucharist is this public fact that says this is true. The things that enslave humankind are defeated. So Paul's just saying, you know, as you come to Eucharist day in and day out, or I think he would say to us as modern Christians, it's in Eucharist that you find out who you are and what you're living for. I love this passage from Ephesians 1 to kind of summarize what I've been saying. Christ is in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power is exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. Christ is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. And this is one of my favorite sentences. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Now, that doesn't make us stand up and beat our chests and say we're better than everybody else. It's an enormous responsibility. That at the heart of what God's up to in the world is the building of a church that the world would experience as for its good. That's what's central. The world doesn't drive the agenda of the church. The church expresses in grace and peace and, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5, in all humility and respect and love for others, thinking of the, the most broken out in the world as more valuable than ourselves, we, having come to the table, turn and give ourselves to the world as table, and that is central. The world is peripheral to that. The church is not peripheral to the ups and downs of economies, or stock markets, or election cycles. That's the place where we do our stuff, but it's not defining. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. So then I'd want to wrap this up by um, quoting a great New Testament scholar, um, Richard Hayes, who says that Eucharist reminds us that Jesus freely gave himself up for death. This was not a tragedy of personal betrayal. Come on, listen to this. This isn't a, ah, oh, crap, if it weren't for Judas. <laughs> Dang it. You know, there's the world again. No, this isn't a story of personal betrayal and the tragedy of that betrayal. And this isn't an accident of courtroom justice, of Jesus, you know, being... Um, unfairly charged and unfairly tried. This isn't what's going on there. Jesus gave himself freely up for death. That's what is at the heart of Eucharist. That's why he can say, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Nourish yourself on the reality of me. Take this cup. It's the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Drink it in remembrance that I died for you. And that, and, you know, we don't have time to get into this in Corinthians this time, I don't think. But, I mean, if you take 
all the Pauline letters, but and especially in First and Second Corinthians, well, I don't know about especially, but you just find that for Paul, the cross is the wisdom of humanity. Like, if you want to know anything about humanity, Paul would say, begin with the cross. There is the wisdom of God. That's what's central to all of human history. And so Paul would want to say that to know Jesus rightly, not in your divisions, but to know him rightly is to know him precisely through the Eucharistic story. And that he gave his life freely for you and me and all sinners. And that to know ourselves rightly is to know ourselves as the recipients of his self-giving, which then leads to lives in which we are then free to live sacrificially ourselves, not pursuing our own interests and pleasures, but giving ourselves for others in remembrance of the one who gave himself for us. Now, just before we come to our confirmations and reception, I want to invite you to a quiet moment in which you might want to bow your head and close your eyes and I want you to begin to imagine. I want you to imagine your life nourished weekly at Eucharist. And as that life is nourished, like just think of somebody who's sick or malnourished. And as they, maybe it even begins with IVs. They're they're so messed up that it can just be IVs. And then maybe they begin to eat a little bit. And as they become nourished, they they become able then to live a life in public. So imagine yourself nourished weekly at Eucharist and thereby becoming a self-giving table at which others find full acceptance and are nourished in Christ. Just imagine that for yourself for a moment. Perhaps ask God to begin to make it real.